This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 9th of June. And on the programme today, as the President opens a new academy to offer education, training and learning programmes around child development and care in the UAE, we found out more about the latest developments in the UAE's schools. Plus, as our teenagers swat for their exams, we discussed anxiety and how to handle it. Plus, we got some top tips on how to revise with the Director of Studies from Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. We also discussed competitive dads as it emerges many of them are injuring themselves on school sports days. Joe Terry, the founder of ISM Sports, gave us an insight on what it's like to manage UAE parents on the sidelines of sports matches here. Plus, we also caught up with expert Gordon McLelland. He's the founder of the company Working With Parents in Sport and the author of two books on the subject, including Great Sports Parenting. And we discuss a major story making headlines both here and abroad, and that is that British curriculum exam papers are being sold online for thousands of dirhams. We found out how common this problem is with Michael Draper, who's a professor in legal education at the University of Swansea and an expert on academic integrity and cheating. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. This is our chance to really get into the nitty-gritty of those education headlines that have been making the news over the last few days. Delighted to say joined in the studio by producer Jennifer Crichton because it is time for Eye on Education and Jen has definitely had her eye on the latest headlines, including an absolutely fascinating one. Now, this came out of the United Kingdom, but I think it is, I think it carries, I think it's an Mm. international story, isn't it? Because um, while exam time can be extremely stressful, and my goodness me, I know it is stressful at the moment. I've spoken to several parents of teenagers. um, It's fair to say they're slightly losing their minds at the moment. Uh, But anxious students are being warned not to succumb to online scams that promise to help them Uh, emerge with good grades. Experts say that social media fraudsters have been targeting youngsters, offering to sell them what they claim are leaked GCSE and A-level exam papers. But, spoiler alert, which are actually fakes. That's right. Now, these youngsters are reporting paying in excess of 16,000 dirhams for false papers in the UK, where the scams, as you say, are believed to be originating. And now the exam bodies there are warning that while actual leaked exam papers are extremely rare, opportunists looking to take advantage of students' exam fears are not. They've warned youngsters to be aware of scams on Instagram, TikTok and Snapchat. And they say students who do try to take advantage of opportunities to cheat risk being disqualified from setting their exams altogether. So it's not just a financial issue here. If they get caught cheating, it can have very, very serious implications. So we'll have more on that and on better ways to help your kids with their exam anxieties later in the show. Yeah, fantastic. Now we're going to stay with the schools specifically because it seems that uh, it's not just families moving to Dubai who actually need to concern themselves with school waiting lists anymore. This is something I've actually experienced in, in my own life. It's a really interesting story. It's really interesting. So it seems that schools across the city are developing long waiting lists because enrolment rates are rising. Experts say Dubai's population is swelling with an influx of new arrivals, but that's coinciding with a drop in families leaving the Emirate. They say property ownership is also rising and families are staying longer than ever before, putting down long-term roots in the UAE. And the big picture of all of that is that we're getting ever higher enrolment rates at all stages across the city schools and that's leading to massive waiting lists. A number of education firms say they're now operating a one-out, one-in policy because their classrooms are full and a number of those education groups are looking to expand. Dubai British Schools, the latest to announce a new campus due to growing demand. It's food for thought if you've been considering a change of school for your kids and as you say, both of us have experienced this where we've been sort of told about the importance of re-enrolling and grabbing our kids' places for next year in advance. Yeah, there was real pressure. Um, 
um, it was really interesting. The school this year, I mean, they're always asking for us to, you know, they always seem to be asking us for money. <laughs> it's just constant. <laughs> Even when we, you know, one year we paid all of the school fees up front, suck it on the credit card, paid for them all up front to get that nice 5% discount. They're still asking for my youngest summer term. And I'm a bit like, well, first of all, we're halfway through it. And second of all, we paid it all up front about a year ago. So please stop hassling us. Anyway, but yeah, they were very, very strict about signing up for re-enrolment for next year. We had to pay 5% in order to ensure we had hit that other boy's place. Um, And yeah, it, it was, but there was more pressure this year. They did say, look, we've got a waiting list. You need to sign up. Otherwise you might not get a place ultimately because we're sorting out the class lists now. And if they're sorting them out in June, ready for September, can you imagine how difficult it's going to be for people who you know, move over the summer. They're going to find it. I mean, it is amazing. Who would have thought it? But demise schools finally seem to be full. I remember back there was a time when, you know, everyone thought we were sort of, you know, they were overbuilding. Yeah. Build it and they will come. And then they do. Okay, a new academy. This is a story that literally just broke this morning because a new academy focused on child development is going to open its doors in the Emirates. That's right. It was announced by His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, the president of the UAE and ruler of Abu Dhabi this week. The National Academy for Childhood Development will be headquartered in the capital and it's going to play a critical role in developing programmes related to childhood affairs is what they've described it as. That's got a particular focus on education, but also on training and childcare for staff who work in schools as well. Okay, interesting stuff. Let's turn to adult education now, because the Dubai Centre for Artificial Intelligence has just been launched at Emirates Towers. What I love about this country is that when I grew up in the United Kingdom, our version of Emirates Towers is basically the sort of the Houses of Parliament. Yes. And it's so much, Emirates House is just so much glossier and cooler and um, impressive and ridiculously high. And I remember I had the honour once of going up to the um, the Prime Minister's office uh, right at the very top. And it's amazing. They have a sort of eerie up there where the idea is it's a very open plan environment because they want to have as m- as many sort of collegiate style conversations as possible. Oh, wow. They also serve the best snacks known to man, <laughs> just so you know. They did this thing where they put peanut butter on slices of banana. And I, I like literally perfect little slices of banana with peanut butter on top. And it, it's the most delicious thing I, I think I've ever eaten as a sort of high protein, healthy snack. So, you know, that's interesting because I used to work a great deal in the Scottish Parliament and never got served anything that made me particularly want to try their canapes again. Yeah, you'd be lucky with a digestive biscuit there. A very dry one. A dry or, or soggy, which is yeah. even worse. <laughs> one, or, one or the other. <laughs> right. Turning our attention back to the Dubai Centre for Artificial Intelligence. <laughs> because the centre was opened by His Highness Sheikh Hamdan bin Mohammed, the Crown Prince of Dubai. And the idea behind it is that they're going to train up a thousand government employees from more than 30 government bodies uh, so that they can basically use generative AI. So they're they're really grabbing the bull by its horns, so to speak. Yeah, and it's going to host dozens of pilot projects across the public sector and it's aimed at improving government services and productivity. But interestingly, it's also going to be used to support more than 20 tech startups. So it does seem to be quite wide ranging in terms of where it's it's casting its net. It's also going to involve the Dubai Future Foundation, DIWA, the Dubai Media Council and the Dubai Digital Authority. So it's aiming to establish Dubai as a global leader in the field of artificial intelligence across a whole range of public services. So it'll be really interesting to see what that does. Really interesting stuff. Let's uh, turn our attention finally to a very uh, cheerful topic uh, and also a very futuristic topic as well because a student in charger has won a top prize in a competition aimed at designing the future of the emirates that's right 28 year old rahaf sabah from syria has picked up ten thousand dollars for her vision of a future with high speed autonomous transport green fuel and flying taxis it's part of Sharjah's police future readiness competition which handed out prizes worth a total of $127,000 to 181 entries that tackled problems ranging from cybersecurity to future crimes which I was hugely intrigued by. 
Interesting stuff. Yeah, that does sound very Minority Report, That's doesn't it? exactly what I remember the in movie? my brain as well. Yeah. Such a good film. Such a good film with Tom Cruise, who incidentally is going to be coming to the UAE soon for the premiere of his latest Mission Impossible film. Sadly, I am away. It's just before Eid, but Jen is here and we are fighting to try and get Jen into that premiere. I'm very excited at the, we need the to get prospect. You in. We're trying. We're, we're trying. trying our best. They've got it. I mean, and then that will be so your first mission, should you choose to accept it, <laughs> is to get to the premiere. The second is obviously to interview Tom Cruise. To interview Tom Cruise. And the third, I double dare you to ask him about aliens. <gasps> because he believes that we are, that humans, certain humans, not all, certain humans are actually aliens covered with human skin. Yes, he which genuinely, is an interesting one. Yeah, he genuinely believes that, which is so interesting. See, I would be slightly scared to ask him about that. Yeah, I'm, you should be. I'm more keen to ask him to run because my little boy, we're currently going through the Minority Report movies. And right now, whenever my little boy wants to do something at ridiculous speed, he just sprints away from me shouting, Tom Cruise running. Did you know that there is a... a um, Someone, a researcher, an economic researcher, looked into the amount of minutes that Tom Cruise spends running in a film and discovered that the more minutes he runs, the better the film does. (laughs) There is a direct correlation between how much a film makes and how much Tom Cruise runs in it. I can see how that could be true because it is absolutely captivating watching Tom Cruise run. It's really very special. I'm trying to find out. I'm quickly Googling to try and, to try and find out what it is. He's run in 44 of his 52 movies. <laughs> what are the ones he didn't run in? What I'm loving, what I'm loving is that if you search for Tom Cruise running, you get, does Tom Cruise like running? How good is Tom Cruise at running? What is Tom Cruise running speed? Is there a Tom Cruise movie where he doesn't run? How far has Tom Cruise run in his movies? The answer to that is 18 minutes and 10 seconds in the totality of his acting career. He has run for 18 minutes and 10 seconds. I had no idea that there was so much on Tom... Here we go. Oh, it's a real thing. Movies featuring Tom Cruise running more than a 1,000 feet have a higher tomato meter, that's for Rotten Tomatoes average, a huge 71% than the movies in which he runs less than a 1,000 feet. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Yeah, welcome back to the Agenda, and it is uh, that time of the year. Pretty much anyone with a teenager is struggling right now with exam stress. I have actually been trying to get a couple of teenagers to come on the radio. And what's interesting is that they are so laser focused at the moment uh, that their parents just aren't willing to disturb them. They aren't willing to sort of get them, even for the opportunity you need to hear yourself on the radio. They're like, no, 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 you, you don't understand. We're, we're at a you know, we're at a very tense time at the moment. They need to keep their focus. You know, they've got an exam tomorrow or they've come straight out on an exam and then they've got revision all afternoon and then they'll need, you know, you know, they'll have that hour of rest time and then I want to get them to bed early. So you really get a sense of um, the stress and, and, and strain that both the children and their parents are under right now. And I have to say, with a 10-year-old and, eight, and an 8-year-old who I struggle to get that, to do their homework, I am not looking forward to this period in our lives at all. Um, and we wanted to sort of address that. We wanted to confront it here on the programme, here on Eye on Education. Uh, and we also wanted to maybe get a bit of advice, you know, some hot tips on how to soothe troubled waters at this time of the year because I guess it's not just the teenagers who've got exams I know that for example my son's got his GL maths exam today now you know when you're under 10 you don't get stressed out about those or at least I make sure that my boys don't by sort of making too big a thing out of it but I know that in other households it is considered a tense time so I'm delighted to say uh, that we're joined by an expert by a professional Nick Radbourne is director of studies for Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai joins me on Microsoft teams and he is a fount of knowledge good to have you with us nick how are you (laughs) i'm very well nice to see you yes now how big is a problem is it in pupils this exam stress you've worked in the industry for a good long while have you have you seen it getting worse do you think no i don't i think it's I th- well, a little bit, I suppose. I think there's, there's there's more pressure on students now, actually, to perform. Uh, as far as the exams concerned, I think that pressure has has increased. Um, but I, yeah, and I and I, but it's there all the time for for all the children. I mean, for some of them, they handle it really well. 
they manage stress and in fact it's it almost they almost enjoy that bit of stress actually it helps them gives them drive gives them a real kind of sense of i i really want to succeed here but there's others that don't um who really find it difficult and you, you can tell it when they're walking in we, we we just finished our year seven exams this week and we've worked really hard to make sure we've supported the children especially around their well-being for those students we know who are going to find this period really stressful it's lovely now that we do have this focus on well-being in schools in the uae how do teachers handle it you know those kids that are really you know buckling slightly un- under the stress and the strain i think it starts with the preparation we make sure they're really prepared well for the exam so there's no surprises you know it's kind of making sure they go through the process I mean we're doing exams with year sevens now so when they get to year 11 actually they know what it feels like they know what the stress is like they know what they're going to have to do to prepare themselves Um, but you're also making sure they know exactly what they've got to do so we're putting things in place we make sure they understand how to revise we put revision plans in place we do all those sort of things and it's also those little touches from my tutors who who will go and speak to the children who they know is going to find it a little difficult make sure they're prepared make sure they've got everything they need uh, for the exam so you know they, they've got their equipment ready so they're not getting very stressed because they've got a pen or a pencil or something like that so it's little things like that sometimes just to make sure they're calm they're ready to start the exam so they can do the best they possibly can okay so what are your best tips for keeping a level head you know from a pupil perspective so for example my son had his gl exam today i said look my hot tip for you don't worry i'm sure you're brainy enough i'm sure you're going to be able to answer all the questions but i just want you to read the questions properly and if you finish early i want you to go back and i want you to check your answers so those are my very proud of them those are my sort of two top tips (laughs) for for how to but, but i imagine as a teacher you might have a few more no, they're really good. They're perfect tips, actually, and it's exactly what we said. We have a little uh, kind of rhetoric we come out with before the exam and kind of say that to them, you know, remind them, go back, look at your work, make sure you've read the question properly. I, I mean, the amount of children, you still don't read it properly, but that's about stress and that's about being anxious. So those little things are really important. Um, having a positive mindset, I know that sounds really simple, but actually going into the exam going, you know, you won't know it all, but just go in do your best try your best uh you can only do that and i think that sort of attitude and especially you know if we maybe talk about the parents and how they can support i think that's one of the biggest things certainly in school we're going you know you can't do any more you've done the preparation just have a really positive mindset um make sure they've got a clear revision plan beforehand so they you know they know what they're doing uh children tend to like to revise what they love so you know they'll I love history, so I'm going to do loads of revision on history, but I'm not going to do so much on uh, some other subject that I'm not so keen on. So it's making sure they're really clear about what they're doing so they have that sort of preparation beforehand. Um, Eating healthily, making sure they're hydrating. I know that sounds really simple, but especially in this climate, um, it's it's really important. They're ready and they're prepared. They sleep well, so they've they've had that time to actually. They're not they're not staying up till midnight revising, and then you know they they'll just won't perform the next day. So those sort of simple things. Also, what about parents? Now I know that there are a lot of um, very ambitious parents here who are paying a lot for their education, and they really want their kids to do well. You know, they've seen the value of good education and how it can lift you, and, and ultimately how it can make you happy once you've got a great job. As a consequence, you know, do you con- are you concerned ever that parents are putting too much pressure on their children during this time? Um, I, I, to be honest, I, I haven't seen that here. I, I think they've been incredibly supportive, but we've tried to. Uh, support them as well so they they can understand how we want to support we actually sent out a revision booklet to the parents a few weeks ago to explain to them how they can support their children so it was very important we did that i i think i i see they you know they want the best for their children but we've also got to support them with that and i think most parents uh are, are getting that absolutely right they're supportive you know they they realize there is stress around this period they've been through it themselves um, and we encourage them to to make sure they're looking after the well-being of their children and supporting them the best the way they can. 
Interesting stuff there, especially that you haven't got those sort of uh, aggressively sort of pushy parents, because that's actually going to be a topic for us a little bit later in the program as well. We want to look at uh, competitive parents on the sidelines of sports matches, for example. But that is a conversation to come uh, shortly (laughs) after midday. I won't put you on the spot and ask you about that. But uh, yeah, we're also going to talk about competitive dads, uh, which uh, my husband is one of them. So he's going to be, uh, to a certain extent, named and shamed in the next half hour as well <laughs> fantastic i'm glad to hear it um so yeah nick uh, absolute pleasure to have you on the line as always thank you so much for talking us through those you know i mean just great tips for anyone who's going through that exam period at the moment my heart really goes out to to all of you who are going through that nick radborn there director of studies for royal grammar school guildford dubai thank you so much for your time this is eye on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people hello there welcome back to the program Eleven thirty-eight. lots of really interesting comments coming in on the subject of uh, competitive parents and also exam stress. uh, Abdesalam says that pressure never comes labelled, sometimes just reiterating simple advice such as the ones, you know, such as the advice we've been giving over the last few minutes can put pressure on children. In his view, the landscape here is indeed very competitive. Now, exam stress is something we've uh, discussed several times here on the programme. And in fact, uh, producer Jennifer Crichton, when she was presenting uh, a couple of weeks ago, or actually I think, Jen, you were producing when you and Tom was presenting. I was producing and Tom was presenting. It was before I got thrown into the hot seat. Yes, and you actually, uh, Tom actually spoke to a really interesting psychologist about the different ways in which you can actually manage exam stress. Uh, Her name was Dr. Kirin Hillier. She's a clinical psychologist, but she's also a teacher at Heriot Watt University in Dubai. That's right. And I think what Dr. Kirin gets really well is that she's coming at it from the perspective both of a psychologist and of a teacher who is dealing with students. So she very much sees it from the medical side and also from the teacher-student side. And what she said to us is that stress is an entirely normal state of being for young people to be in right now. I don't know any student, whether it's um, primary school, high school, university, who doesn't find the exam period stressful. And certainly if they've then got other vulnerabilities, there's risks that um, mental health difficulties that they already have could deteriorate. It can trigger mental health problems. It can result in lack of sleep, which has its own roll-on effects in regards to your physical and mental health. So, yeah, it's not fun for either the students or the parents. And this is what she said is the all important thing to understand. I think it affects students in different ways. I mean, I would be surprised for a student to not be stressed because as as I talk about with my clients and my students as well, you know, you should be stressed and stress is in and of itself a useful mm. emotion. It'll help keep you focused. It gives you that energy. It drives you and it motivates you to want to work hard. So there should be some stress, but it's about keeping that at manageable levels. Our bodies are very good at dealing with acute stress. What it doesn't cope with very well is when that stress is chronic. So that's an interesting point. You know, when do we know if it's tipping into chronic? And what can we actually do to help our kids if they are looking like that stress is really starting to get to them? Now, that's where the sort of psychologist part of Dr. Kieran comes in, I guess, because this was her advice for when our kids are really struggling. I guess probably the number one rule would be for them to actually plan their study schedule. Um, So I will, with my clients, uh, with my students, it's getting them to think about how are you going to break that down? Um, Because if they say, oh, I'm going to work really hard because I want to get A's, that's like, okay, that's great. Um, But what does that mean in terms of, especially if you've got a student who's typically been, say, a B, but they want to bring that mark up, What's your actual practical strategy for how you're going to do that? Like, how does that then translate into, do you mean you're going to study for longer each day? And is that feasible? Or do you mean you're going to study smarter in terms of how you engage in the material? I know for me personally, I need to be very interactive. So I'm writing and I'm linking things and I'm drawing and I'm all of that. Other students, it'll be if they can hear it. Or uh, then that's a better way for them to take it in. Others, it's if they read it. Others, it's if they're um, in a group and they're talking about it with other students. Um, are you practicing with 
uh, actual exam questions. So if your teacher hasn't given you um, practice exam questions, please do ask for those. Um, And then try to recreate that exam situation as much as you can. So if it's going to be two hours, then ask your parents, leave me alone for the next two hours. um, And I'm going to try and get through this as much as possible. Because if your body gets used to the conditions, then once you're in that actual space, it's less stressful because it's already been in that situation before. It's really he- interesting there to hear about the sort of different styles of personality. You know, that, that if you're a certain personality, then you learn in this way. If you're a certain personality, you learn in the other way. And that parents need to be sympathetic to that. And I suppose ultimately it comes, you know, you need to get advice from the teachers as to what kind of learner your child is. Absolutely. And I mean, years back, I worked for the National Union of Students in Scotland, and we got training on how to talk to the students. And what was really interesting working there is they used to have this toolkit that they would lay out on the table whenever they were doing any sort of training, because they said some people just simply couldn't take in information unless they had something to play with. So there were things that were sort of smelly. There were different colours of pens. There were sort of tactile toys. And this was for teaching students at university and beyond, adults. And they said, you know, if you are a tactile learner, you need something to hold, you need something to play with. So it really is very critical that people are allowed to learn in the way that works for them. And I think often as parents, we all sort of go, sit still, don't do that, focus on this, because we see our kids as needing to learn in the way that we learn. And that's not necessarily going to be the correct way. And what Tom said is that his two kids take very, very different approaches. One's very studious, organised to the extreme. The other's more relaxed. But he was asking, is one approach better than the other? And can we actually study too much? What the research very strongly indicates is your brain needs time to consolidate the information that you're learning. Mm. So... When students tell me I, my parent has told me I need to study for eight hours a day, I go, oh, <laughs> that's not, um, that's too much information for your brain to actually be consuming. So in terms of giving yourself regular breaks and sleeping properly, I think that's the thing that a lot of students will sacrifice in their efforts to try to cram. Um, if your brain is not getting that rest, Sleep is when it's consolidating all that information that you're learning. And teenagers need like 8 to 10, 11 hours of sleep. Um, So I I really encourage my students and my clients, please do not sacrifice your sleep. It might feel like, oh, this will be good. But if you're half tired, you're not really taking in the information anyway. So it's much better to get a good amount of rest. And it's the same with diet. Um, It's the same with exercising, getting some physical activity, socializing with friends. Um, But Maybe a way to then incorporate that is is to give it you know an, a reward process. So for every two hours that I study, then I'm going to gift myself half an hour of um, playing video games, talking with my friends online. But interesting words there for Dr. Hiran Killia, a clinical psychologist and a teacher at Heriot Watt University in Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. You're listening to the Agenda here. And in fact, you're listening to our special Eye on Education programme, which of course we host every single Friday from 11 until 1. And I'm delighted to say that we're now turning our attention to an international story that has much wider ramifications because British curriculum exam papers are being sold online for thousands of dirhams via social media sites, things like TikTok and Instagram. Now, exam boards say it's actually incredibly unlikely that the papers are real. So what's being sold is actually a scam. But they say these scams are becoming much more common. And the fraudsters are charging anything between 40 dirhams all the way up to 20,000 dirhams per paper. They actually often uh, cost them in different currencies, in pounds or in dollars. Uh, But if you do the translation, you know, you can sort of get a general gist. Uh, Now, Instagram, TikTok and Snapchat have said that fraudulent activity was against their rules. And anyone who spots such accounts selling these papers should report them. But just how 
common is this and how big a concern is it for the educational community? How concerned should we be as, as parents? Joining me now is an expert on the question, Michael Draper, a professor in legal education at the University of Swansea. He's also an expert on academic integrity and cheating. He joins me now on the line. Michael, how are you? Good to have you with us. Oh, a very good morning and probably a good afternoon to you, George. Great to be with you again. Yeah, we just hit the afternoon, or nearly hit the afternoon, eight minutes away. Also, uh, coming very close to the close of the school day here, because on Fridays they all finish at midday. Um, So a very sort of pertinent time to be addressing this topic. Had you heard about this, and and is it common? Yes, I mean, it's clearly been in a lot of the uh, national press and media here in the UK over the last week or so. Uh, is it common? Uh, well, I think cheating has been around ever since exams were invented. It's just the way that uh, fraudulent activity and cheating activity um, evolves will depend upon the type of assessment you have. So file sharing sites, for example, where students can access uh, material and essays uploaded by perhaps other students, have also been around for some time based on a subscription service. But of course, what you're referring to here is a one-off event where uh, adverts were placed uh, within social media as to availability of certain exams uh, for a certain fee. And of course, those uh, adverts were touting something which was completely false. So um, uh, can I can I pinpoint you on that? Because the exam papers, the exam boards have all said that the, that the papers themselves will be scams, that they won't be real. Yeah. But then, of course, they'd say that, right? They don't want, they don't want to admit to maybe <laughs> that they'd, you know, that they've got, uh, I don't know, a, a mole in their system. How sure can we be that, that in fact, these are fakes? Well, uh, one, I think you have to take the examples at their word. They wouldn't be putting out statements uh, to that effect if they weren't confident in the security of their uh, systems. Because that security, that confidence in those systems is vital. Uh, It's vital for parents, as you said. It's vital for students in in terms of their performance. And, of course, ultimately the proof will be in the pudding. You know, if students actually turn up to an assessment expecting a a certain type of paper with certain questions on it, and it's completely different, as has happened, then uh, those that have bought these uh, exam papers are going to be pretty upset. So why take the risk? Why take the risk that they are indeed uh, not genuine and they are and they are fakes? So as far as uh, cheating is concerned, we've had you on the radio in the past talking about the, the use of chatbots to cheat uh, you know, and, and write essays. Do you see sort of the more old school style of cheating still taking place in exam rooms, for example? I mean, people writing the answers on their arms. You know, does that does that old school type of cheating still exist? It, it, uh, Georgia, it does. Um, uh, and certainly, I think, with the move back to more in-person assessments and examinations following uh, post-COVID, where much of the assessment went online, there's been a shift across. And so, yes, it is still the case that um, students are still taking notes in, secreted. Uh, they're still taking bottles with uh, water uh, with with the uh, label on it, with writing on it, which appears, of course, when you drink the water. Uh, of course, around the globe, there have been issues around uh, cheating vests for some time. Um, the, the old version back in China, of course, with the old Chinese examinations in relation to uh, uh, Confucian-style civil service, but more, reg- more re- recently, where um, earpieces have been secreted into to, to glasses and uh, connected to receivers hidden in vests. Uh, and pictures of those are available to, to view on, on on the website. My goodness me, we're a long way from when people in my uh, sort of social group used to pop to the loo. I mean, that was before anyone had mobile phones. You know, you'd pop to the loo and you'd somehow have like hidden a history book behind the cistern or something. It, they, they've got way more advanced. Uh, way more advanced. I mean, technology is there basically to receive signals in an example I mean, some people have talked about having a Faraday cage built around examination halls, which basically, you know, copper copper mesh basically built into the walls so that signals can't be received from outside. So, yes, as assessments change, come back to in person, still some assessments will be remote and therefore you'll have remote proctoring, which has its own issues, of course, where you have big tech watching every move in, in relation to what you're doing on screen. 
there's never going to be an exam which somebody will not have the ingenuity uh, to actually try and uh, circumvent. Ultimately, it all comes down to the fact that you just need to study. And I'm sure there's lots of teenagers right now listening to this thinking, if only there was an easier, circuitous route around this. Uh, I do remember when I was revising, um, I, my, my room looked out on the sports fields. I was very lucky at school and I'd be studying there and I'd see everyone else or what felt like everyone else running around outside, having a brilliant time gossiping. And I used to just feel this real divide of me versus them. And then there was that joy after you took the exam of no longer having it hanging over you. And and to this day, I still can have nightmares about exams. You know, that feeling when it often happens when you're nervous about something, right? But you, you have a nightmare that you're about to go into an exam that you haven't prepped for. I mean, the fact that the, the legacy of that continues, you know, even in someone who's 44 and hasn't taken an exam since for more than 20 years, uh, shows you just how, how difficult it can be and how hard it can be on the psyche of these teenagers. So my sympathy goes out to anyone with a teen in the house that's taking an exam at the moment. Michael Draper, professor in legal education at the University of Swansea, an expert on academic integrity and cheating. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the agenda. As always, thank you for your insights. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Lovely to have you with us. We are looking now at how parents behave on sports day and also at matches uh, because one of the uh, big stories coming out of the United Kingdom this week uh, has shown that uh, there's been some dads and they have been actually injuring themselves uh, at sports days. There, there appears to be something of a trend uh, and it's one that uh, is worrying because you get this situation uh, where fathers participate in the sports day. They're trying their hardest and unfortunately there are uh, numerous injuries taking place. Now, is this something that has happened in your life? I was hoping that lots of people would come forward with stories, uh, at least from my social circle. But what's interesting is that people don't seem all that ready to talk about it on the radio. Now, I do know of exactly uh, of one particular incident in the dad's sports uh, race. Basically, I mean, I'm sure you've had this. They do it here as well, because uh, in most of the schools, you have the sports day and then the final race of the day is actually for uh, the dads or the mums indeed and uh, and I have seen several situations where dads have sadly halfway through the race fallen down now I don't know whether that's because they're running in slippy shoes or they haven't come prepped in their trainers uh, but one dad in particular in my social circle who will remain nameless uh, managed to really badly graze his knee I mean you know how Astro could be really quite painful he really badly grazed his knee because he was wearing shorts and he took a tumble during the Father's Day race. So such was his competitive spirit uh, and unfortunately ended up a proper wounded soldier. Now, if you've heard stories along those lines, I'd love to hear from you. I, we have a competitive father in our household. It was very, very important to my husband that he managed to win the Father's Day race. Very important. Uh, unnecessarily important. It came up in conversation for many weeks afterwards. You know, apropos of almost nothing, it would be mentioned that, in fact, he had won the Sports Day, Father's Day race. Um, and I imagine he's probably listening to the radio right now because it's school pickup time. Uh, but, yeah, it, I know that there are dads out there for whom this is an important badge of honour. And those are the dads that I would like to hear from. So please do get in touch on 4001. Or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 Now, such a trend this is that we're actually joined on the line now by somebody who's written a book about it. Uh, several books, in fact. I'm joined now by Gordon McLelland. He is the founder of Working with Parents in Sport. That is the website. He's also the author of two books, uh, including one called Great Sports Parenting. And I'm delighted to say that he joins me now on Microsoft Teams. Gordon, how are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to have you with us. Now, we're talking about dads injuring themselves on sports days first. Is this a, a regular trend, do you think? Well, hopefully the injuries aren't um, too regular, but I think a lot of the things you've said, um, there's something about the sports day race and the ego and trying to roll back the years and the, I guess, the macho things that are attached with sports day that, that, that often come up. 
it's very interesting how parents sort of interact with with the sports at schools in on every single level because there isn't just the sort of general participation in sports day but there's also the uh, the shouting from the sidelines element as well isn't there yeah and i i think it's i think to be honest i think we we try to copy what we think the world of sport should look like and bring it into the uh, children's space you know I think we see how we support or how we see matches on TV supported and we think that that's the the level of support our children need and the best way to go about it so I think it causes some um, conflict for us when actually you know we know that there are better ways of developing young people with their sport and and how we need to support around it. So, um, for example, uh, I'm I'm very good at sort of occasionally going to these matches, and I, and I try my best to pay attention to what to what's going on. And if I do engage with it, if I manage to tear myself away from my my phone and my emails, I do end up shouting a bit. You know, I'm I'm quite happy to you know to shout my son's name and say, "Well done, go! You did well! Great try!" good sport kind of thing and, and clap loudly. Is that type of praise to be encouraged or, I mean, at what point are you going too far? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really positive, isn't it? I mean, all the things you're doing there are, are, are very encouraging. It's, it's got a positive slant attached to it. I think the it's when we go the other way and we start yelling at other people, other children uh, referees officials other coaches and it it just becomes uh, a little bit too emotional uh, is when we start seeing some of the challenges and the reality is that being a sports parent is a really emotive experience even at the very you know top end of sport where we work with some of the parents whose children you know are heading off to to major events potentially on to the olympics it, it's a really stressful time watching your children it can be um certainly i mean at some level do you think that parents are basically trying to relive their childhood through their kids like, I think there's elements of that. It, it, you know, the, everybody says it wherever you go and say, you know, parents living vicariously um, through their kids. But there's, a, there's very little there's very little research on it. Look, I think there's something that is very powerful about the world of sport. I've never sat in a bar uh, and, and an adult say to me, Gordon, do you know what? When I was 11, um, I was top of the class at algebra in maths. <laughs> never had it. Never had it. But I can guarantee you I've had hundreds who said, Gordon, you know what? When I was 13, I had a trial with them or somebody came to watch me. We'll get Gordon back on because I really want to hear what uh, what he thinks about the, you know, the psychology of the competitive dad, the psychology of the competitive parent. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to the show. Right, we are looking now at how parents behave in the sporting sector, or at least in the... Uh, in the school sporting sector on the programme today. Loads of stories coming through about how uh, competitive dads have either managed to injure themselves or others on the sports pitch. But we're also talking about how parents behave on the sidelines of matches. And I'm delighted to say that I've managed to get back on the line, Gordon McLelland. Now, he's the founder of Working With Parents in Sports, something of an expert on the matter. Great to have you with us, Gordon. Thank you so much for joining us on the line again. Now, I mean, what's so fascinating is that you felt that this was such a big topic that you even formed a company uh, on that basis, working with parents in sport. What was the the principles behind that? Yeah, I mean, it was an amazing story, really. I mean, my background's in in coaching and education, so I, I understand the sports world particularly well. But I took my three-year-old son to a local village hall to play football, and I was doing all the wrong things, a bit like you said. I was scrolling on my phone. My life was involved in sport, and I wasn't really paying any attention. And then I was approached by a Premier League football scout, wow, what an amazing uh, thing that was. And I must have gone through every emotion that every parent does when somebody tells you that your child is good or they're doing well. And I was very excited, couldn't wait to get out and tell everybody all about it. And as I was driving home, 
I was thinking, what on earth are you thinking? You've been in sport all your life, coaching, education, and you think that this is a good thing. So I, I got home. I did what most parents do because nobody really helps us out. I typed into Google, how do you support a five-year-old in sport? And I just didn't like what I found. I felt there was a, a lot of negative uh, press towards parents. I felt it was trying to label parents as good, bad, helpful, unhelpful. Um, I just didn't like the tone of it. And I felt we could we could do a better job with that in something that parents aren't supported with at all. So um, hence the company came about and it's um, absolutely thriving. We work all over the world with 15 national governing bodies, football academies, cricket, rugby pathways, international hockey programs. And parents are really grateful for the support about how they can you know, work with their kids through their sporting journey. I'm sure that we've all seen parents getting it wrong on the sidelines. And I'm sure I could point to, you know, what you shouldn't do. But but what should you do? <laughs> like, how, how do you find that, that, you know, how do you tread that fine line between uh, encouragement and, and taking it too far? Yeah, I think it's a, a huge self-awareness piece that, it, you know, it's children's sport and it's not the World Cup final. I, I know it can be big in our in our environments but actually young people um play sport for fun they they tell us that that's their number one answer uh, and i think it's for us as the adults to see the world through their eyes understand why they're playing what's motivating them the environment that they want around their games and you know they need the freedom to be creative, make mistakes, communicate well with their teammates. And it, it's on us as the adults, and I include coaches in that, to, to set the environment for young people to thrive. How about uh, the how about the sort of the parents that want to get involved and actually deal with the, the coaching themselves, you know, actually turn up on the morning and, and help out with the coaches? Do you think that all of those parents would need to take courses do you think or do you know do you think you can just be uh, helpful on the touch lines but I, I think it's uh it's a, it's an interesting topic i mean i i think yeah i think those parents who volunteer gosh we need them they they hold the sports system together so many of them commit a huge amount of time really passionate about running teams for young people but you know they do need some levels of support about how they work with young people the the coaching environment the creating some ideas um, to support them so that they can create the the best environments for young people. And look, I think ultimately we all want that. We all want our children to thrive and the people we coach to thrive. I think sometimes we just don't quite know what the best way to go about that is. And I think that comes on the, the sports industry to, to support those volunteers. I'm going to go back to the question that, that I asked you when the line dropped, because I think it's a really interesting one. Uh, and I, it's something I see in my own family. Now, I was never very sporty, so I definitely don't have any sort of latent leftover sporty desires of, you know, of, of cups I didn't win or medals that weren't awarded to me. But I think maybe my husband might a little bit. I think he always did very well in the sports sector, but I think he's super keen for our boys to do just as well. Do you think there is a little bit of the the dad or the mum living through their children, you know, having their, their childhood all over again, but, but just with a different person living it? Yeah, a little bit. And as I, as I said before we cut out, you know, there is something powerful, isn't there, about, about the world of sport and sporting success. But the statistics of our young people actually making it to the very top are very low. Um, you know, my son did go and sign a Premier League Academy contract at the age of nine. Um, and, you know, as he signs that contract, I'm then told that I've got more chance of being hit by a meteor than him playing Premier League football for that team. Now, obviously, I don't tell him that, but I'm the adult in the experience and I've got to be realistic. And I think some parents, because it's sport, we think back to what didn't work for us. Was it some opportunity I didn't get? Was it some coach that didn't do this? And we try to, I don't know, label what it was. We maybe come up with A, B and C as to why we didn't make it in sport. The reality is it wasn't just A, B, and C. It was A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. There's loads and loads of reasons. You know, sport's too messy. And 
I think all of us as parents just want to give our children maybe the opportunities that that we didn't have. So there's no regrets. And certainly sport, you know, is one of those where we really get stuck into it. Yeah. And equally, a bit of pressure can be good for them, can't it? A bit of um, a bit of grit, a bit of rigor, a bit of, you know, you know, reliability, always turning up for training, keeping to the, the fitness plan. That really does stand young people in good stead for adulthood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And look, our role modeling and the things that we value around the sporting experience are really important. And sport still remains today one of the safest vehicles to equip our children, you know, with a wide range of character and life skills that will allow them to thrive in whatever walk of life they go into. And those skills that you've labeled there, you know, things like commitment, determination, resilience, creativity, good decision makers, self-organized kids, good communicators, all of those things are there, but we've got to value them as parents as well. We've got to bring them to life. And if all we ever talk about is a specific outcome, then we're not helping our kids because our support has to be on the processes because outcomes are going to come and go. Really interesting stuff. Thank you so much for joining us on the line. I know we had a few gremlins in the system, so it's brilliant that you managed to rejoin us on the phone. Thank you so much. Gordon McLelland there. He is the founder of Working with Parents in Sport. He's also the author of two books on the subject, including Great Sports Parenting. Have you got a particularly talented child? Have you had to handle uh, these types of scenarios where actually your child's doing incredibly well? You don't know whether to to push them forward or, uh, you know, I don't don't know. What what do you do when a child is doing very well, when when they're showing incredible promise? Do you push them or do you just let them take the lead? It's, It's very difficult. Oddly enough, my youngest seems to be turning out to be very good at swimming. But swimming is really boring. (laughs) Sorry to say that. So the idea of me making him go and train every single morning, it's not something that I would do myself. But if he has the, the potential talent, then maybe that's what I should be encouraging him to do so that he can reach the, you know, the very best of his ability. I hope he's not, they're probably out of the car by now, so I hope he's not listening to this. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is the challenge that I think that all parents face as to whether or not you should push them and then if you are going to push them, how much you should push them by. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Now we're staying with parents on the sporting sidelines now because we were ultimately inspired to explore this subject after the story of two parents actually being badly injured in a school dad's race in the UK this week. And while that obviously made us laugh, plus I had several stories of dads doing a similar, uh, well, taking a similar trip, it's fair to say. There is, of course, a serious side to this story. As we just heard from expert Gordon McLelland there, there is a fine line between helpful, supportive and overly competitive intervention from parents on the sidelines of kids' sport. Now, one man who knows more about where that line lies than most of us is Joe Terry. He is the founder of the Dubai-based extracurriculars provider, ISM Sports. I'm delighted to say uh, that he's managed to make time in his busy schedule to join us on the phone. Joe, hello. Good to have you with us. Overall, do you find parents on the sidelines to be generally helpful? Good afternoon. Um, Overall, we do find that they are uh, quite helpful, to be honest, because in certain environments, how we play our sports, there's normally actually a parent's line. So the the parents have to stay behind that line. And that is kind of away from the field or court or whatever um, the activity we're actually we're doing. So when we're doing uh, training and when we're also having matches, these occasions... We are, we've got a safety line, so they're, so they're not coming in and they're not disrupting what we're trying to tell the children on the sidelines. Hang what on a second. Get... Hang on, hang on, hang on, Joe. You have to have a line and you have to tell parents to stand behind the line. I think even the fact that you have to have a line says a lot about parents in this country. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, it's kind of uh, also in the UK this as well. It's, um, but if you don't have that line... The parents are almost on the pitch. <laughs> so we need this situation where it's safe 
for everyone. So they're back. They're not encroaching on the pitch. And ultimately, they're a little bit further away from the pitch than we are. So then the children, hopefully, are listening to us rather than listening to their parents. But the problem is, is that some parents have very loud voices, don't they? Uh, they do, yeah. Um, and then we see this situation happen in, in matches as well, where the child will be looking at their parent, and sometimes their parent is getting actually upset on the side. And what we're actually telling the, the child, what we've been working with the child all week, sometimes the parent doesn't see the training that goes into the match. Mm. So the parent sees a little snippet, and maybe they think that their son can do a little bit more than what is expected than we expect from them. And then well, that's, what, that's when it comes a little bit of an issue because if the son or daughter is looking at, the, at their parents and they're asking one thing and we're asking another, that's where it can get a little bit tricky. So the, uh, so the only time when this has properly impacted in my life was, um, <laughs> it was one of those weird things. I mean, I know nothing about football. I know nothing about how you teach children to play football. I, I mean, I literally, I, I am starting from ground zero. But one of the other dads said to me, I've noticed that your eldest always seems to be in goal. I've told them that I won't have my boy in goal because it means he never actually gets to practice football. He's just always standing there. And I, of course, immediately thought, oh, no. I'm a terrible parent. I've never, that's never even occurred to me. But you're right. He's just standing there. And he's got very good being a goalie. But no one, you know, there's no glory in the goalie. And so, and so immediately I felt, oh, my goodness, should I be taking the instructor to one side and, and also insisting that my child should not be left to, you know, squander his talent between two posts? Yeah, no, I, I, no, I agree in, in, one, in one way with that parent that especially if your child is young, there's no way that they should be forced to be playing in that one certain position. And it's not, it wouldn't be a bad thing if you did approach the coach and just say, would it, would it be okay for him to maybe try other positions, especially if he's young? If the child is under 10 years old and he's being forced to play in the same position, then that's wrong. They should always be able to play in all different positions. And in that development phase of when they're just starting between you know, four years old to 10, there shouldn't be any certain position. So your child should be able to play in other positions as well. Mm. So in, in, that, in that respect there, then maybe, yes, I would say, to imp- it, like, in, like maybe contact the coach. It doesn't have to be in front of everyone. You might want to just do it on, a, on, a, on an email, on even. a phone call yeah. or, you know, after the training session or just a quick little chat with them and just say, is it possible that this would, you know, can my child, and also, as well, then the coach might say to you, well, your child wants to go in this position, because that might be another, like, issue as well, that you might have, that the child might only want to do a certain thing or as well. So they might just say yeah. he's got two left feet, he's completely useless, you're lucky we're even letting yeah. him come. <laughs> I know yeah. they would never say that, but but well, I know we. Well, oddly enough, fortunately, um, uh, he he graduated from goal anyway, so we didn't have to have the conversation. But it goes to show that you know a little bit of parental involvement, as you advise me, there is actually potentially a good thing. So there are certain things that you know maybe you should get involved in. We've had a hilarious message through here from someone who's chosen to remain anonymous, saying, "My late husband used to say, show me a good loser." and I'll show you a loser. <laughs> um, so I imagine that's not one of the messages that you'd like parents to be passing down to their children. No, of course not. And the main thing for us is the support. If the child is really engaged with the sport, then the, for a parent, I think that the best thing you can do is support them. And if you can support them in what they want to do, rather than you trying to push them to do that, then I think that's just... Um, you know, that's a brilliant situation to be in. Now, I've, I've luckily been here for 12 or 13 years and I still meet now some of the kids that I was teaching when they were five and six and I just saw them playing football at the age of 18 and 19. And for me, I'm like, right, that's job done for me because that child, when he was four or five, when he first started the process with me, he's, he's now not with me, but he's, he's still playing that sport. And I think as a coach and as a parent, that's the main thing that we can do. And if you can kind of, if your child, when he gets older to be an adult, still wants to play the sport, I think then that's a positive from all fronts. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about keeping in perspective. I mean, I remember uh, all of my, my husband sounding very proud because of one of our boys being very good at rugby. And, and I was like, I don't, 
I don't want him to be a professional rugby player. Can we can we just make that clear now? Like I like I, it's great that he's good and we should encourage him, but do I want that to be his career? No, right? absolutely not. Never mind the fact that quite often in rugby you get quite sort of injured. You know, I'd quite like him to go and have a have a slightly, you know, different profession. But but obviously, you know, that and that is what it's all about doing. It's about keeping it in perspective. Uh, Joe Terry, an absolute pleasure to have you join us online. Thank you very much. I didn't put you on the spot. I wanted to ask you about some of the worst behaviour you've ever seen. But I know that you have to work with parents who are badly behaved. So I didn't want to uh, put you on the spot there. But that's Joe Terry. He is the founder of ISM. Sports. Fantastic to have him join us on the line. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there. Welcome back to the programme. Welcome back to Eye on Education. We're into the last eight minutes of our programme today and we're going to mark World Environment Day, which of course actually took place on Monday this week. But with COP28 fast approaching, I think it's fair to say that nearly every single day is World Environment Day here in the UAE for the next six months. And in fact, the UAE government has branded 2023 the year of sustainability. So I imagine that focus on how we can all make a difference to the climate crisis is set to continue. Now, one young activist who has the lead on all of us is Sagarika Shriram. Now, she's an enterprising young student at Jamira College. Now, and she's also the founder and CEO, already a founder and CEO of Kids for a Better World, which is a website she actually started when she was 10 years old. Now, Sagarika is 17. She's doing her A-levels, but she took time over her week to catch up with me and talk through her journey to climate to climate activism. So I started my work when I was about 10 years old. I just finished a course with John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth on web design and coding, so HTML coding. Um, and then for my final project for that, I had to create a full functioning website. So I decided to theme mine and the environment and animals. Um, and then I think that generally just gave me the idea of setting up a website. And I think just after that, I worked with a team and I sort of developed this website and I created Kids for a Better World. Around the same time, I was learning a lot about the environment in school and about how like we're all interconnected and how essentially humans do make a very big impact on the environment. And we need to learn about what we need to do to manage that. And then, yeah, even at home, um, my parents have always been very supportive. My dad has taught me about, you know, gardening at home and growing your own fruits and vegetables and living a very sustainable lifestyle. So I think it all just worked out very, very well. And I think I was always pushed towards this goal of creating a website that children can use. And it's not overbearing for children because I understand that the concept of sustainability and environmental awareness can be very almost overbearing. It's so hard for a child to get their brain across it that like, oh, if we don't do something that in like 30 years, the earth will essentially collapse, like we won't be able to survive. So I think my, the biggest goal of Kids for a Better World was to educate children from a young age and teach them about what they can do in their own day-to-day life to live a more sustainable lifestyle and make a difference. And do you feel as a teenager that your contemporaries, that your friends feel as strongly about protecting the environment and and doing something about it as you do? No, definitely not. The whole point of what I was doing was that I felt that me as an individual cared a lot more about this topic than the people around me. And my goal was essentially to educate these people and teach them. And potentially, I, of course, don't expect everybody, you know, set up their own website and make this difference in the community. That's obviously an unrealistic expectation from our community as a whole. But my goal really was to educate people so that they can individually be their own change makers. Even if it's little steps, it's a change in mindset more than anything. And you really do just need to make those changes so that you never know, you know, maybe one of my friends is going educating someone else. And it's almost like a ripple effect. And I think that does create systemic change, which is extremely important when it comes to fighting our climate crisis. And so tell me a little bit more about the website and how it works and how children can engage with it. Initially, when I set up the website, I wanted to create a scheme called a green cart, because I always believed that as a child, I think incentives for a child are extremely important. I think I really need to be pushed towards something with seeing like a reward at the end of it. So I created something called a green cart, which is essentially a scheme that where children, when they commit completed activities, they can earn points. And then these points can be redeemed for sustainable or eco-friendly products. And that was initially the whole aim of the website was that I would teach children about steps that they can take, very simple steps that, you know, on a daily day-to-day basis, children can do. So, you know, maybe planting something, recycling a plastic bottle, you know, you switching from single-use plastic bags to reusable shopping bags when you're at the supermarket. 
things like that. And they would gain points for those activities, which can further be redeemed for products on our website. Since then, I've made a few changes and we've also included our carbon calculator. So I've partnered with an organization called AQ Green Tech to create a carbon calculator where children can essentially input, you know, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how much they drive for school, whether they're using appliances, energy consumption, things like that. And they can get their carbon consumption, which when they put in a certain amount that can be redeemed. um, So essentially make them carbon neutral. And I think that's extremely important because that is a very critical part of understanding how to minimize your environmental and carbon footprint is learning essentially how much you are using on a day-to-day basis. And if you teach children that, I think you are educating them from that earliest stage. And has it had a good impact? Are you getting a lot of hits on the website, a lot of engagement? Definitely. Over the past few years, we've had over 130,000 people on our website. And then especially since we started the carbon calculator, I've been receiving emails saying that children are enjoying this activity. I think it is extremely intriguing to understand, you know, how much you're using on a day-to-day basis. And obviously, as you mentioned earlier, we have got these COP28 climate talks fast approaching. They're about six months away now. How are you planning to ramp up your work as we approach that event? For COP28, I'm taking a gap year next year to specifically focus on my environmental work and, you know, try to expand that as much as I can, potentially on a global level. So especially with COP28 happening in Dubai and the UAE, I think that is a very big event for all the local change makers, including myself. So I do hope to focus a lot more on that. Recently, I've been working with organizations like BIA Education, and I'm currently an ambassador for them. And I know they are doing a lot of work towards COP28 as well in terms of they're currently running a sustainability prize within schools, individuals and companies and corporations. So I'm currently an ambassador for them and working with them has been a joy. Um, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm currently a one of 18 United Nations child youth ambassadors. So we're currently working on creating essentially this list of demands for children in terms of what they want to see with the future of the environment. And it's called General Common 26. So a lot of work is going to be being put towards that for COP28 as well. So I think a lot of things are happening. But towards COP28, I really would like to focus on how I can make a very big impact with children. I think the youth has been a very big focus recently at COP27 as well, with the introduction of the Children's Pavilion, the Climate and Education Pavilion at COP27. And I think COP28, I'd love to see, you know, children being involved in negotiations and more of children's voices being heard. Because I think whilst recently children's involvement has increased a lot, I do believe that specifically with the UAE, I know they are doing a lot towards making children be heard. And I'd love to be a part of that. Really interesting there to hear from Sagarika Shriram, who is an impressive individual, I have to say. She's only 17, but she started her climate activism aged 10 when she founded a website called Kids for a Better World. Well worth checking that out. And that's all from the Ion Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.